Let me open us with a word of prayer. We'll divide up into our groups. We'll pray and we'll be back over here by 930 to hear from the word from Mike Arbia. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for Lakeside. Lord, as the elders had a chance to meet and we discussed a multitude of issues, reminds me how much I love this place and I love these people. And I thank you, Lord, for bringing me here and allowing me and my family to be a part of this fellowship. And I thank you for every one of my brothers and sisters in this room that you planted in their heart the same desire to be a part of this fellowship and to be a part of this place where the Word of God is proclaimed. We believe faithfully week after week after week. And I thank you for the elders you've raised up for the church. And I thank you for our pastor teacher, Steve, who is so faithful week in and week out, year after year. And what a blessing it is to us to be able to learn and grow in this kind of environment. And I pray for today. I pray for this morning that we would be encouraged and strengthened by the teaching of Mike as he brings the word to us in Sunday school. And I pray for our time with Pastor Steve in the main service. And I pray for tonight with the baptism service, Lord, when we have a chance to come back and hear testimonies of your grace in saving lost sinners. I I thank you for that. I just pray that today, Lord, would encourage us and strengthen us where necessary. It would convict us and you would help us, each and every one, to be more and more like Christ. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. As I finish getting set up here, I do want to apologize. I am not feeling super great, so my nose is sort of running. I do live with two germ factories. And this month's production was particularly good. Fruitful, yes. <laughs> exactly. Let's pray before we begin. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the opportunity that you give us to come to you to learn from your word. Lord, I pray right now that you'd bless our time, that you would make it profitable, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts that want to fulfill what you have for us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. On July 30th, 1967, on a trip to the Chesapeake Bay, a then 17-year-old girl became a quadriplegic after misjudging the depth of the water she was jumping into. The name of this young woman is Johnny Erickson Tata. That name may be familiar to some of you, because now Johnny is a well-known Christian radio host, author, and missionary worker whose organization deals primarily with ministering to the physically disabled. Shortly after experiencing the trauma of becoming a paraplegic, Johnny experienced a lot of the same sort of feelings and emotions that you can imagine would go through your mind. But upon looking back on this struggle, this is what Johnny had to say in her autobiography. She says, God engineered the circumstances. He used them to prove himself as well as my loyalty. Not everyone had this privilege. I felt there were only a few people God cared for in such a special way that he would trust them with this kind of an experience. This understanding left me relaxed and comfortable as I relied on his love, exercising newly found trust. 
I saw that my injury was not a tragedy, but a gift God was using to help conform me to the image of Christ. Something that would mean my ultimate satisfaction, happiness, and even joy. How does one respond to a situation with this type of attitude? I mean, I can certainly try and imagine how I would respond, but I can't obviously put myself in this situation, but to come away with, from a situation like that with this kind of a perspective is simply amazing. You see, Johnny understood what so many of us fail to in the midst of trials and tribulations is that they are to be met with an all-encompassing joy and worship to God. Now, a few months ago, I had the opportunity to come and share with you guys the opening verses of the book of James. And this morning, I actually plan to continue that. Now, since I know all of you remember in such great detail everything that I said way back in December, we don't need a review, right? No? No, we remember. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Well, I, I think I see one new face. So for, for their sake, I'll, uh, I'll review. We discussed the, the fact that the book of James was authored by a man by the name of James. And after looking at the available evidence, we determined that this was none other than James, the half-brother of Jesus. We mentioned that James was most likely the first New Testament book written, but was one of the last to be added to the canon of Scripture. And the blame for this rests on the men of that time not seeing the worth of the book of James, not seeing the gospel in his short epistle. I stated then, and I'll state it again, that is simply untrue. Everything the the book of James deals with, the gospel is weaved into every part of it. We see from the opening verse of James, when he identifies himself, he also identifies his audience says to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad. This greeting noted their ethnicity. James is addressing Jewish converts who have been dispersed. Because of their faith, they have begun to experience persecution. They've begun to experience threats because of their newly found faith. There was a political threat, a social threat, a familial threat, all because they had converted from Judaism to Christianity. And James writes his letter to encourage them on how to act in the midst of different circumstances of their lives. Not just with with trials and tribulations, but but really telling them how a Christian should behave because of what they've experienced, because they have been regenerated. James is a very practical book. It's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. And in it, you find that James has written a series of tests or proofs that one can examine against their behavior. You've got what James says a believer, how a believer is to act, and you look at it and you look at how you behave in comparison to it and does it match up? Do we pass the test? The first 12 verses of the book of James deals with one of these tests in particular, and that is the test of trials. How a believer should respond when difficult circumstances arise in their life. You see, we want to know what God wants us to know about how we are to respond in the midst of trials. Why? Why do we need to know how God wants us to behave? 
And this is simply because true saving faith will want to bring glory to God even in the midst of difficulties. You see, no one is immune from trials. No one is immune from troubles. There is no exemption because of wealth or status or occupation. We will all encounter trials in this life. It's a guarantee. We see this in verse 2 when he says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Not if, but when. James is guaranteeing that difficulties come. What are some trials that we could face in our life? We can experience the death of a loved one, a family member, a friend. We can experience an injury, both to ourselves or to someone that we know. Car accidents, needing surgery, moving places. We can experience trials of finances and sickness in relationships ending, either friendship or business type relationships, or in some cases, the ending of marital relations, a divorce. We can experience loneliness, the feeling of being rejected by our peers. This is not an exhaustive list, but these are just some of the circumstances that we can and sometimes do face in our lives. Verse 2 expressed to us that we are to come at these circumstances with an all-encompassing joy. Here James is telling us that we draw closer to God by relying on Him to get us through a trial. Not that a trial is fun or enjoyable, that we should like being in them, or that we should respond to those who are in the midst of difficulty with a sort of robotic and cold response. But he reminds us, because of our position in Christ, because of who we are now that we have been regenerated, we can respond with joy in the midst of trials because of two things. One, God is in control. And since God is in control, God has orchestrated all the events in our life. And two, because the difficulty we experience in this life will be completely overshadowed by the joy that awaits us. We also learn that we are to get out of the way of a trial, to not try and short-circuit the process, because it has a real result. Verse 4 tells us that there is a perfect result, that we may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. James telling us that God matures us. That's what he's saying here. He matures us and strengthens us, and in some cases corrects our behavior, so that we can gain a better assurance of our faith and be a more useful instrument for him to use. We're going to be taking a look at the next part of this test of trials this morning, and that's James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. If you have your Bibles, please make your way there. James 1, 5 through 8. James writes, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. How do we tackle difficulty with an all-encompassing joy? Well, we do it by means of verse 5 here, by gaining wisdom. We have to be wise enough to navigate 
this difficulty. And what we're going to be taking a look at this morning is how we gain wisdom in the midst of trials, or really the importance of it. And there are really two entities at play from what we see in this section here. The first is a willing father. A willing father. Verse 5 again, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. James begins this section by saying, But if any of you lack wisdom. This Greek word translated if here can also be translated as since. James is not expressing the idea that, hey, if you're dealing with something and you think that you may have a deficiency of wisdom, maybe go ask God. not saying that, okay, well, check your wisdom tank. The, what James is expressing here is more of an identity of, is more of the idea of since we lack wisdom. Since we lack wisdom. We don't often have it. And when we think we have, like, I'm wise then you're not wise, then you're a fool. So James is telling us that since we lack wisdom, here's what we are to do. Remember, I do want to point out again, the direct context of this verse, verse 5, is verse 2. So this speaks in the midst of trials. When faced with a difficult trial, whether physical or emotional, we have a real and desperate need for God's wisdom. You see, too often we try and tackle the difficulties of this life ourselves. We get in that mindset of, I can do it. That very American attitude of just pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and just heading it head on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to handle this. Okay? I'm going to push, push through whatever difficulty this is by my own sheer will. Because I can do it. Let me do it. Hey, like, like a toddler. Okay? Even this morning, I, ha- I had my little two-year-old. I do it. No, no, I'm really not going to let you cut your bananas. (laughs) You may think you can do it, but you can't do it. We can't make it through trials on our own. It's not possible. We don't possess the ability to do this. One pastor put it this way. We are a bunch of self-sufficient know-it-alls. Thinking we're strong enough to deal with difficulties on our own. All this attitude does is feed into our pride and our feelings. I feel like I can do this. I'm going to do it. Sound faith is not based on our feelings. We should never allow our feelings to dictate how we deal with really any circumstances because our feelings are more often than not wrong. Like, not just like, 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 like really wrong. Okay? We're told that there's a way which seems right to a man, but in the end it is the way of death. A man's heart is is desperately wicked. We cannot trust our feelings to help us. And we can trust them even less in the midst of an emotional or physical trial. You see, responding this way forgets the admonition of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 3 when he says, Trust in the Lord with all your hearts and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. And that goes against what we want to do. Our reaction is, I can do it. But no, we can't. Okay, fine. We can't do it. Well, how, how do we get wisdom then? Can, can we go home and like 
pull up Amazon and have it prime delivered to us in two days or less? What is wisdom? Well, James 3 describes it as being first pure and peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Those are all good things. Hey, you've sold me on it. Where do I get it? Hey, do I drive down the road? Like what? Hey, well, Job is very instrumental in helping us understand where we get wisdom from. Job chapter 28, beginning in verse 12, Job is responding to the advice of his friends, and he says, But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. Well, that's not looking good. Man does not know its value. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not within me. The sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer, or precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystals are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all the living and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, with our ears we have heard a report of it. Where is it? Where can we get it? Well, I can't buy it. You just said that. I can't go look in on the oceans and I can't give precious gems in exchange for it. It's literally not in the land of the living. Where is it? Well, Job finishes up in the next verse, verse 23, and says, But God understands its ways and He knows its place. True biblical wisdom comes from God. And James affirms this in what he says here. What is it? Is it simply a checklist? Then, like, like, what do I do? One commentator explaining it this way, and I really liked his definition, so I just sort of kept his whole quote. So, and I'm telling you that so you know that I'm not a thief. Rather than theoretical understanding, biblical wisdom focuses on, and here it is, practical living in obedience to God's revealed will. Practical living in obedience to God's revealed will. The fool of Proverbs is not a man who is mentally deficient, but rather a man who is morally deficient. He ignores God's commandments and lives according to human wisdom. The wise man lives in obedience to God, thus he skillfully, that's another important word, puts together a life that is beautiful from God's perspective. Thus the Bible affirms, Job 28.28, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord. That is, the, is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Wisdom is not just knowing something. It's not just knowing the right things to do. It's knowing what to do about what to do. You can't just have the head knowledge of, okay, I know God wants me to do this, but, and then not do it. James 4 tells us if you know what is right to do and choose not to do it, that's sin. So true wisdom lives practically, lives skillfully, is the undertone of wisdom in the Old Testament. When you hear wisdom, the idea is characterized as skillful living in obedience to God, not out of some legalistic obligation to check off some boxes, 
This all comes down to what Job says in verse 28, 20. Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. We have to live with the fear of the Lord to understand wisdom. And to live with the fear of the Lord, one must have become in subjection to the Lord. Someone who is not a believer, who has not been saved by God's grace, cannot live with the fear of the Lord and then thus cannot understand true biblical wisdom. You have to know the Lord in order to gain and understand wisdom. And it is because of that, because of our newly found position in Christ, that we live in obedience to God's revealed will, not out of a legalistic obligation, but because we want to honor and obey Him because we love Him and are grateful to Him. We put together a life that is lived skillfully. And we get that understanding from God. James says that since we lack wisdom, let us ask of God. James here first of all affirms that God is the source of all wisdom. He doesn't say since we lack wisdom, go talk to the church. Go talk to your pastor. Go talk to your friend or your parent or some philosophical thinker. And while all of those things maybe not the philosophical thinker, maybe good sources of, of insight and perspective, the ultimate source of wisdom comes from God. He is who we're supposed to go to first. James says, let us ask. I want to point out, this is not a request that James is making. It's not saying, well... Since you, you can't have it delivered, and like if, if you feel like it, maybe try go asking God. You see, the Greek here is in the imperative case. This is a command James is giving. Since you lack wisdom, go get it from God, he says. We are under divine command. He's not giving his personal advice like some kind of first century dear Abby. He's telling us, you have a non-negotiable command to seek the Lord for wisdom. And we can face some serious consequences for not doing that. It is never a good idea to ignore the Lord, especially in the midst of trials. One commentator stating it this way, if a believer is being tested and is not driven to the Lord and does not develop a deeper prayer life, the Lord is likely to keep the test active and even intensify it until his child comes to the throne of grace. We are not to despise the chastisement of the Lord, Proverbs 3 tells us. We are to respond to it. It's there for a reason. And if we ignore him, if you are really a believer, if you're really one of his children, God is not simply going to go, okay. He's going to go, uh-uh. We're fixing this. It would not be a good thing if God said, fine. Because God doesn't abandon his children. The thing is, we would be foolish to go to any other source of wisdom other than God. There is no other source. It cannot be exchanged in anything for it. Wisdom is only found in God. But he asks us to do something. He says, ask. 
God wants us to ask for wisdom. He requires us to ask Him. He's not simply just going to, it's not going to materialize around you. You have to ask. He says, let him ask God. Literally, go ask God. And the amazing thing that James tells us is that God's going to give it to us. He will give us what we ask for, and He will do it generously and without reproach. This carries the idea of being given unconditionally, without bargaining. James is trying to stress the fact that God gives unconditionally. He wants to give us wisdom. He doesn't want us to jump through a series of hoops or to meet some kind of criteria. He says, ask, and I'll, I'll, I'll dump a truck of it on you. Matthew 7, 7, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For anyone who asks, receives, and him who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? Will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? You see, God is not like some kind of sitcom dad whose children come to him and say, Hey, Dad, I'd like a no. Can we get a no? He's not stingy following his family members around, cranking the thermostat back up because he's not made of money. This is not who God is. His generosity is unfathomable. He says he gives it to us generously, without reproach, meaning he doesn't reprimand us for asking. He doesn't remind us how undeserving we are. He doesn't chastise us for not coming sooner. Like, are you kidding me, buddy? You couldn't, like, I would have helped you last week. All you had to do was ask. I'm going to help you out, but seriously? He doesn't withhold because we asked earlier. Like, what are you talking I gave you wisdom last week. What did you do with it all? God, God gives without any hesitation, without any reservation, without any reluctance. To see the kind of picture painted here, Psalm 81.10 says, this is the Lord addressing Israel. He says, I, the Lord, am your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. God wants to give us wisdom. He wants to help us navigate a difficulty in our life. We have to ask. He's willing. He's willing to help us. He is a willing Father. That's the first part. Second element at play in this dynamic is is the wanting child. Verses 6 through 8. James chapter 1, but he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect he would receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I said there was no strings attached to God's generosity. Ah, this, This kind of one. You have to ask in faith. But he must ask in faith without doubting. 
This is not just speaking of a belief that God can answer prayer requests. You see, anyone can hope God will answer a prayer request. Dear Lord, please, if you're not too busy, could you mind helping me without this? Like, anyone can pray that, like, if you're not too busy, or we haven't spoken in a while, but if you're not, could you help? Anyone can pray like that. That's, but that's not how we are to pray. See, it goes much deeper than that. This type of request has to be made with a genuine, confident, unwavering trust in God's character, purpose, and promises. Our requests must be backed with a genuine trust that God will do what He says He will do. What keeps people from asking? Right, right yeah. No, you're fine. It's a good answer. Eyes on your own paper, though. Some people, well, we've got pride. So we'll, but some people, in addition to that, they don't see their need as being worthy of God's attention. They feel like it's insignificant to God. Well, that's irrelevant. Regardless of where our requests lie in the cosmological plan that God has for the universe, it's irrelevant how we feel about us about our requests, how God thinks about our requests. Because God chooses to take a vested interest in us because He loves us. It is actually troubling to God to withhold requests from Him. He doesn't want us to do that. Some people can become bitter toward God in the midst of trials. So they're not going to go to Him. They're not going to ask. They want to know, hey God, what are you doing here? Why are you doing it? And why is it still here? I deserve answers. My circumstance is not great. And that type of attitude will spiral one down because the focus has shifted off of God onto self and will spiral one down into a case of the poor me's. Poor me. God doesn't care. Look what he did. And I don't say that to belittle any difficulty anyone in here may be going through. I just want to make that clear. I'm not making light of, 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 any, of any circumstances in anyone's life. I'm simply stating the f- mere fact that when you shift your focus off of God and onto yourself and to your circumstances, that is not good. That is wrong, and God is not pleased by that. Why is it so important that we have complete confidence in God? Because it's a test of loyalty. It is a test of loyalty. Are we going to trust the Lord? Are we going to be loyal to God in the midst of circumstances? Hebrews 11.6 And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. We have to remember Matthew 21, verse 21 and 22. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and what? Do not doubt. You will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all the things you ask in prayer, the next word's important, believing you will receive. We must ask in faith without doubting. It says, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not expect he should receive anything from the Lord. 
being a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. This type of person who doubts is, is someone who wavers. The type of person who asks with doubt in their heart is not a person who's really asking at all because what would be the point of asking if you know that it's not going to happen? This type of person is tossed around by their circumstances because they have no firm foundation. And when this sort of immaturity is mixed with a whirlwind of trials, bad things happen. This sort of imagery being tossed around is also mentioned in Ephesians 4 when he speaks of someone being tossed here and there by the waves of carried around by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. The type of person who does not believe God can be taken at his word is someone who will be blown around and will be taken to different sorts of doctrines. When we do not trust God, we go from bad to worse. To worse, sir. And this type of person should not expect that God will answer their prayers. You see, they set an expectation and God says, okay, I'll meet your expectation. This type of person is like ancient Israel. When Elijah addresses them in 1 Kings 18, he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God... Follow him. But if Baal is, follow him. The type of person, this double minded, is a card carrying member of the Laodicean church who Christ says will spew from his mouth. This is a fence sitter hovering between two opinions. The most tragic thing about the type of person who James is describing as double minded is that they are not a true believer. I said this is a test of loyalty. This type of person becomes resentful to God for giving him a trial and looks to other sources, looks for other solutions that may tickle his ears. James 4, 8 says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, you double-minded. James is speaking to a, to a Jewish audience that would understand when he says, you sinners, he knows he's speaking of unbelievers. And James equates the two, an unbeliever and a double-minded person. This type of person may say the right things, but in their heart they're dark and act as though God does not exist. It does not matter how the double-minded sees themselves. They're called that for a reason. I said they're sitting on the fence they got God's side on one and the world's on the other and they're like, I'm going to pick. Make a choice. Matthew 6, one cannot serve two masters for either will hate one or love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. James 4, 4, you adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Sitting on the fence is not not making a choice. It's not not picking a side. It's picking a side and it's the wrong side. That fence belongs to the world. Like if it fell down, the world would have to pay to fence it back up. A person who doubts God is not committed to obey Him no matter what. 
their heart has not been fully surrendered to do what God's will says they are to do. Maybe curious about God's wisdom to find out if they agree with it, but they're not committed to do what, to do what it takes. Deuteronomy 6, the Lord set up this command really early on. And he says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Not some, not how you feel that day. All, always. We need to trust God's promises. Why? Because we love God wholeheartedly. And to know God is to know that he can be trusted. There's the problem here. If you don't know God, you don't know that he can be trusted. There is no other way to serve him or to love him or to serve him if you don't know him. Difficulties are not fun. They're not meant to be. They have a real purpose. They expose our hearts. Not to God. God certainly already knows where our hearts lie. But they expose it to us. Like a scientist who removes an unknown test sample from his centrifuge to identify exactly what it is, so too we can run the test of trial in our life and examine the results and say, I have looked at what James says and I know where my hope and trust lies. Ask yourself, A couple of things. How do you get through a difficult circumstance? Who or to what do you turn to uh, first in the midst of a trial? Is it God? Where is the source of your skillful living coming from? Are you placing, are you pursuing the wisdom of the world or the wisdom of God? Now, I'm not going to say that anyone who has any kind of doubt about a circumstance is an unbeliever. I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to say that. We mess up. Humans are not good at, uh, at doing a whole lot of things. I like, we're sort of okay at breathing when we don't get sick. But we mess up. We mess up a lot. We make mistakes. But we can fix it. We can go to God with all confidence and ask Him for wisdom. We can even preempt some of these things. How do we preempt not having any kind of wisdom or tools to navigate through a trial? Well, first and foremost, we can fill our tanks with God's wisdom. These are not like real tanks that you can get off Amazon either, is like metaphorically speaking. Okay, I, we mentioned that wisdom is is practical living in obedience to God's what? Revealed will. What's his revealed will? I can't figure out what it is. It's on the tip of my tongue. Daily intake from the word of God is so important to us. Even like when we're not experiencing difficulties, how much more when we are? We should be feeding our souls daily from the word of God, not coming to church on Sunday with a big old purse and that you throw your leftover buffet food in and just take that home with you. We should be digging deep into this daily. This is the nutrition our soul needs. You spend time there. 
second, a deep and healthy prayer life. Do you talk to God? It's really easy to turn to God first if you're always on the phone with Him. Life is going to get hard. Life is full of hard things. Doesn't it make sense to tackle it with the right equipment? We turn to God because we don't need to handle these circumstances alone. We need something. We need God. He's willing to give it to us. We just have to ask. Let's close in prayer. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your generosity to us that you give to us our salvation, that you give us grace and mercy, that you give us wisdom, Lord. I pray, Father, that for those of us here, for the church as a whole, Lord, that we would seek you at all points in our life, not just when we are dealing with difficulty. But I pray, Lord, that we've made our resting place in you, that we can run to you when we do face the trials of life. Lord, I ask you again to be with the requests that were mentioned in the prayer groups, that you'd work in those situations to bring about the most glory for yourself, Lord. I pray as we transition to the service here that you would again open our hearts to receive your word, that we would leave this place, Lord, and be shining examples for you and your son. In your name we pray. Amen.